0: Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. I map out game plans for this podcast, much like I develop lesson plans for my undergraduate discussion sections. I have a general idea of what I hope to accomplish, specific points I want to address, but I try to leave a lot of space for the chat to evolve organically, and in my experience, some of the most important insights emerge when a discussion heads down unexpected paths. So it was with today's episode, featuring Dr. Nadine Zimmerle of the University of Virginia Press. Zimmerly is the press's newly appointed editor of history and social science books. I stopped by her office intending to chat with her about what it means to edit early American books, the publishing industry, and her professional background, and you will hear all of that. What we also talked about was her life growing up in East Germany before the fall of the Berlin Wall and how the history of a divided Germany and its reunification shaped her life and her career. This, of course, is all rather timely. We recently celebrated the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, and now we are talking about new walls in our own time. Indeed, a small section of the Berlin Wall is erected on UVA's campus right next to the main library, only about a half mile from where Nadine and I recorded this episode. And I think the symbolism of the wall's placement next to the library is important. It is a reminder that concrete walls designed to divide people cannot suppress what Thomas Jefferson called the illimitable freedom of the human mind. Now, before we get started, please be sure to like and subscribe to Conversations wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks very much to everyone for your support. And now, on with the show.
1: Actually, let's go with Nadine Zimmerle because Na- the, the
0: Americanized version. Nadine Zimmerle. Yeah. Okay. How would, you, how would you say it again? in German
1: Nadine Zimmerli
0: I would really screw that up if I tried (laughs) that (laughs) Um, well uh, we are sitting in the boardroom of the University of Virginia Press so this is where the fate of many authors are decided (laughs) and Nadine you're one of the people who helps decide their fate as the one of the editors here at the UVA Press
1: Yes, that's right. I'm the editor for history and social sciences here at the University of Virginia Press.
0: And you, this is, how long have you, are you in this job now? Because this is a fairly recent change for you, right?
1: Yes, I started in early September, right after Labor Day.
0: September 2019. Okay, so you've yeah. uh, you've not been here, what, two, two months now? Yep. Oh, wow. How's it going so far?
1: It's been great. It's been a wonderful whirlwind, and I've been really enjoying my new position here. Ooh,
0: good. So I, I want to talk about how you... You came to UVA Press uh, over the course of our chat today, but you know we thought as we were talking before we, we hit the record button, we thought we might start with the fact that uh, you are a native of Germany and you grew up in East Germany before the fall of the Berlin Wall. And, and as we're celebrating the fall of the Wall in recent days, I wondered if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about uh, what it was like to grow up in East Germany, and, and sort of what what the commemoration in the, in the past few weeks has meant to you?
1: Yeah, that would be lovely. I am from Leipzig. the um, Well, actually, a cluster of villages around Leipzig. And I grew up in the dorms, actually, with my mom. She was getting her master's in history in the mid-1980s. And so um, I got an early taste for the historical profession mm-hmm. that way. And growing up in the East as a child in the 1980s, I wasn't aware of the failure of the East German system, but I would quickly have become aware of the failure of the East German system had it endured. Mm -hmm. And so actually my childhood was quite nice because I entered school in 1988 and I was a young pioneer and as a young pioneer, we were trained to care for the world. Mm-hmm. And to do a lot of, lot of good. so
0: what, what is a pioneer? Mm-hmm. Can you unpack that a little bit?
1: Yeah, it was the um, East German Youth Organization. Okay. It's um, the first level of basically entering the party. So mm-hmm. you become a young pioneer in first grade. And for East Germans, you, in fourth or fifth grade, became a Tiermann pioneer in honor of Ernst Thiermann, a communist martyr uh-huh. who had been murdered by the Nazis in 1945. And after that, you would have become a member of the Free German Youth And then from there, you would have become a member of the Socialist Unity Party. I see. The SED in German. And I only ever entered the first rung of that Mm -hmm. uh, organizational structure. But my childhood was um, actually really bucolic. I grew up in the countryside. My dad's an agricultural engineer. My mom worked at the University of Leipzig in the admissions office. So she commuted into the big city, but we lived in the countryside because of my dad's work, and so I just remember a lot of times playing outside and going to school, being raised to do good for the world um, as part of these organizational structures. We did have school on Saturdays. That was less nice. Um, So that stopped in uh, 1989 and 1990 with unification. And I just remember unification as this tremendous moment of excitement and opportunity and upheaval, but I didn't quite understand it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I do remember is I watched a children's program at my grandmother's house with my cousins, and there was almost like a CNN news ticker at the bottom of the screen, and it said that Erich Honecker, whose portrait had hung in every single school, uh, every single public building, had been replaced by Egon Krentz. And I remember thinking that was momentous, mm-hmm. so I, w- I knew enough to know that this... Change in leadership didn't happen quite often. And then shortly after all that had happened, I was awoken at 4 a.m. And my parents bundled me into our Trabant, and my grandparents were also there. And my aunt and uncle and my two cousins, we all trekked toward the Bavarian border. And so this must have been in mid to late November of 1989. And that was we were part of that East German wave that went over to the West to see wow. what it was all about. And there was a financial incentive that the commemorations don't talk about anymore, but every single East German received welcome money from the West German state. Really? So we were there to collect the 100 marks per adult and 50 mm-hmm. for the children. And then you couldn't really take it home, or it would, would have been silly to take it home, and the East German economy had been an economy of want. Mm-hmm. So once in a while you stood in line for butter. Um, or the, most example, the best example most historians use is toilet paper. Oh, and right. so yeah. a lot of East Germans took that opportunity to just stock up on all the products they had seen yeah. advertised on West German TV. And my family was no different. Wow. Um, and my parents were building a house at the time and they didn't have enough connections to get some building materials. Mm-hmm. You needed to have connections. Basically, you needed to know the butcher who knew the roofer um, <laughs> and trade something <laughs> to the butcher yeah. and, and the, to get your roof put on. So I remember my parents uh, buying... Faucets for our bathrooms oh, with yeah. this West and money, yeah. but they also picked up uh, Christmas, Christmas presents. presents yeah, um, my cousins were, my cousins wanted a digital watch, um, and they wanted sneakers with um, velcro lace. You no, know, oh yeah, the, yeah, 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 uh, the velcro type sneakers. And I wanted I was very stereotypical. I wanted a Barbie doll. Oh yeah, yeah. So. I was a stereotypical girl, (laughs) and um, my grandparents picked up citrus fruit because that was restricted. Bananas and oranges um, were hard to get Mm -hmm. in East Germany. So, in
0: in November of seventeen eighty-nine, November of Mm nineteen eighty-nine, in Bavaria, I imagine it was pretty chilly. Was it not?
1: It was quite cold. Yeah, it was quite cold. Being uh, driven there in the dead of night. Yeah, Um,
0: but probably exhilarating at the same time, even as you're sort of thinking about. Know quite not quite. You're becoming aware of what's happening in some respects.
1: Yeah, and and being able to again go to the West, and I'd only ever heard of the West. Yeah. And my dad had studied in Berlin at Humboldt University, and I had asked him once, "What is this wall?" I mm-hmm. knew there was a wall, and what does it look like? And he had tried to describe it to me, but I couldn't visualize. Yeah. What it meant to be imprisoned in your own country. Sure. Uh, and so it was quite a momentous occasion to the border,
0: I you know I can remember as a kid watching on TV uh, of the wall falling, and I remember the Olympics was it the next year? Then was it, was there a 1990 Olympics or 1992 where there was mm-hmm. the it was the unified team that competed? Mm-hmm. And uh, you yeah. know I think I was young enough that I didn't quite understand what was happening, but uh, you know, and, but even from from here as a young kid, I, you know, it was sort of clear that something important was happening. And interestingly enough, you know, we're here at the UVA campus, and just across the way there, um, are, are is a display of two or three sections of the Berlin Wall. Um, do you have a sense of, or what, what do you think about when you when you pass that uh, on your daily walk across campus, or you know, and what do you think people ought to take away from uh, the significance of having? a section of that wall uh, in a place uh, dedicated to education?
1: Um, I think it's a, a quite memorable artifact because it speaks to a peaceful revolution that was instigated by the people. Mm-hmm. And there was a, quite a lot going on on the international level as well to make it happen. But to me, it it's a reminder that the people of my city um, had tremendous courage, stand, yeah. speaking truth to power, yeah. and insisting on civil rights, and against the odds, were able to transform a society without bloodshed. Yeah, and I think that's quite singular when it comes to revolutions. Yeah, um, and it speaks to. It also speaks. I think it's really nice that you have that piece here at UEA and in America because it speaks to the role the Americans played in mm-hmm. facilitating the downfall of communism. And in 1989. And it's also a bit of a reminder to be vigilant. Sure. That this could happen again. Mm -hmm. Um, We're talking about walls again.
0: Sure. Um,
1: And so having this on a campus, I think, is a wonderful opportunity for faculty here to maybe Mm -hmm. take their students there and tell them about the significance of this. Artifact. Yeah. How it was erected in the 1960s, why it was erected in the 1960s, the thought process behind it. I'm a historian of Germany as well, of German history, you know, history. And in the 1960s, that was actually a non-violent way to contain quite a big crisis. Mm-hmm. So putting up the wall was seen as the East German solving a problem for the Soviets and the Americans that the Soviets and the Americans didn't know how to solve, which was... Yeah. Emigration from East Germany to West Germany and tremendous loss of population mm-hmm. and averting bloodshed at that point through building the wall is also quite interesting sure. to contemplate.
0: Yeah,
1: And then again, um, in the 80s, it's a reminder how civil society can mobilize mm-hmm. and what factors you need in order to bring about change for... The better.
0: Yeah, it's it's a. I think as you rightly pointing out, it's a literally a concrete example of history still being mm-hmm. present and a reminder that you know the that that is still in the very recent past and we're still mm-hmm. think, we're dealing with some of the ramifications of it. But also, as you rightly say, you know the talk of borders and walls again and mm-hmm. and where is that going to lead us? Um, did you? So how did you? How did you become interested in history? Because you you grew up in a very historic moment. And Mm -hmm. and what was it about the past that uh, intrigued you, that led you to become a professional historian and a professional editor?
1: So as I said, my mom raised me in the dorms at the University of Leipzig when she was getting her master's degree in history. And she actually wrote about the collectivization of agriculture in Mm the 1950s. And her degree was obsolete the moment the wall came down. (laughs) because her theoretical framework had been about Marxism-Leninism and Mm -hmm. how it informed certain processes. And she never worked in the profession. She then pivoted to become an admissions officer. But her interest in history sort of generated my own interest in history, Mm -hmm. and she had gotten her interest in history from her dad, my grandfather. Mm -hmm. And I just remember him having... So much patience with me Answering my questions about history And he had books from the 1890s That he would show me And show me maps And show me the old German Gothic writing And just talk to me about history And he was A voracious reader Mm -hmm. And sort of shared that love Of the past with me Through telling me about the books he was reading And also showing me these older volumes And so when I Was in at gymnasium, the equivalent of high school, I majored in history. Okay. At gymnasium in Germany, you have to pick two major fields. Mine were history and English. Um, and so I got the, the full treatment of historical subjects through choosing that major and learned the critical thinking skills associated with doing historical work. Wow. And when I then transitioned um, into college, I also knew that history would be something I wanted to pursue Mm -hmm. more professionally. Mm -hmm. And what inspired me, aside from my grandfather's love for history, is just contemplating my great-grandmother's life. And that's actually, that was part of my essay to apply to the University of Wisconsin at Madison to uh, get a PhD in history. And I said, my great-grandmother was born in 1914. So she grew up under a monarchy. Yeah. And then she came of age in the Weimar Republic. Mm -hmm. She had a family and was a young wife under Nazism. And then she spent the remainder of her life in a communist dictatorship, but was um, able to see Germany unify in the 1990s. Wow. And she died in 2001, so she lived this life under five different political regimes and I just found that fascinating how... That's amazing. If you think about it, one German biography can encompass five different political regimes. Yeah. So I wanted to learn all about those five different mm-hmm. political regimes and what everyday people's lives were like and how they transformed, but also how they stayed the same. Did her life in the village actually change between the Weimar Republic, mm-hmm. Nazism, and Communism? Or did it follow a trajectory it would have followed in the... 1860s. Oh sure. Um, because it was a village environment. So.
0: So, I mean, that's pretty amazing. You uh, said she died. She was born in 1914 and died in, in 2001. 2001. Five different political regimes over mm-hmm. the course of that time. And so, when you you know, taking this inspiration with you, when you go first to West Virginia, right? You were. Uh,
1: yes. As an undergraduate,
0: and then on to Wisconsin.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: For your graduate degree, what um, what did you want to focus on when you got to Wisconsin?
1: So should, should we
0: do the on Wisconsin thing?
1: <laughs> we should uh, <laughs> go Badgers. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a, anybody who knows me knows that I'm a big fan of the Wisconsin Badgers. Still. Oh, very nice. Um, there's even a, a hockey puck upstairs in my office. Oh, <laughs> because I was a season ticket holder um, oh, while, cool. I, was in, while yeah. I was in grad school. Um. So my my own path in life... Actually, the, that is something that was influenced by communism, I believe. Um, my parents married quite young. Mm-hmm. It was quite common for people to marry young, have children young. And I met my husband in high school, actually. I was a high school exchange student in Minnesota. Okay. And we decided to stay together. And it didn't seem odd to me that I would get married right out of high school. Yeah. And I didn't see any stigma associated with it either. Mm-hmm. It's just something my parents' generation had done, and so it just seemed normal to do it myself. I know a lot of my friends who are still back home did think it was a little odd yeah. that somebody would get married that young. Um, but to me, and, and based on my own family history, it didn't. So I got married, and that's the reason I emigrated. Mm-hmm. And my husband wanted to go to Shepherd College in West Virginia, and I went along with him. And so he chose college, and the bargain was I got to choose grad school. Oh, nice. And then as a Minnesotan, he had to go to Wisconsin. <laughs> um, so, that
0: must have been painful.
1: Yes. The, he was quite uh, accommodating, <laughs> yeah. but definitely unhappy having to wear a Wisconsin sweater to the hockey games. <laughs> so, yeah, we went to from West Virginia to Wisconsin, and I have to say – Shepherd College gave me a tremendous education. Mm-hmm. I was part of the honors program. I got to write two undergraduate theses because it was a liberal arts college with hands-on teaching. Wow. And my undergrad professors took me to five conferences. So I was wow. socialized as an academic yeah. early on through those experiences. And in college, I had focused on emigration, being mm-hmm. an immigrant myself. And I looked at Jewish emigration from Nazi Germany in the 1930s, and wrote my two distinct theses on on variations of a theme, and applied to Wisconsin because Wisconsin had a really strong um, German history and Jewish history program, and I was uh, selected as a George Mossey Fellow at Wisconsin, and I was going to focus on uh, immigration some more, but then I quickly realized, as you do in seminars, that A lot has been said on certain topics, Oh yeah. and I didn't quite know how to enter the conversation. And my advisor, Rudy Kosher, was a historian of memory, Mm -hmm. and so through his seminar, I became really interested in historical memory. And I actually also was empowered to become a little more interested in my own history. So I, for my master's thesis, focused on the historical memory of 1953, Mm -hmm. on... In that year, you had the very first uprising against communism within the Eastern Bloc, and it happened to be in East Germany.
0: And so for folks who uh, who may have heard the term historical memory before, uh, but but maybe uh, aren't quite sure what that means, can you give a quick overview of what does it mean to study the historical memory of something?
1: So I can actually use my master's thesis as a good example. It's basically looking at how successive political regimes or stakeholders use the memory of a certain event and recast This particular event every single Mm -hmm. time to suit their present political purposes. Okay. At least that's um, how I approached my master's topic, which was this uprising that had occurred on June seventeenth, nineteen fifty-three, and about a million East Germans rose up against the regime, and Soviet tanks suppressed this uprising. And it was interesting to me to study how the memory of this event, the sort of different interpretations played out over the decades mm-hmm. in East Germany, in West Germany, and then in a unified Germany. And every single time the message changed. Oh. So for East Germans, it was actually um, a fascist-inspired uprising. Mm-hmm. So fascists from the West had infiltrated the East and inspired workers to rise up. And oh, the workers did so, it, you know because they were led astray mm. by those evil, evil fascists. <laughs> it had nothing to do with work quotas being raised on yeah. workers and dismal conditions um, in terms of housing and food supply and other uh, issues that led to workers actually going on strike.
0: It was the interlopers' fault.
1: Yes, yeah. it was the, the, West, the West German fascists' fault. And in West Germany, it became this memory of... The, the uprising was used to commemorate... Uh, German unification to to a degree. So the West Germans actually used June 17th, 1953 to every single year on June 17th remind themselves and the world that Germany was a divided country Mm -hmm. and ought to be unified. And that clearly the East Germans were oppressed and had risen up against their oppressors and they wanted nothing more than to unify under the aegis of West Germany Mm -hmm. in a democratic fashion and then in the in the unified period well, once Germany was a country again june seventeenth nineteen fifty three was actually recast differently because now unity had happened, but on a different date October third, nineteen ninety is when Germany unified so then June seventeenth became a way to almost exonerate Germans for the crimes of Nazism in a degree to a degree so it showed that Germans can be democratic and Mm -hmm. they can rise up against oppression. And so there was a linkage made between 1848, the revolutions of 1848, and this uprising in 1953, and then a unified Germany being a democratic stalwart. So it was basically a, a way for politicians then to say, well, Germans might have perpetrated genocide in the 1930s and 40s, but there's also a strand of the German national consciousness that has always been democratic. I see. And that came out in 1848 and that came out in 1953 and mm-hmm. now we have it again in the unified Germany. Sure. So it's interesting to me how an, an event can be recast quite significantly mm-hmm. and interpreted differently depending on the present political circumstances of sure. a nation. And if you want to talk about the commemorations right now, there was a bit of a tempest in a teacup because the German foreign minister had, um, on, November, in early November, leading up to November 9th, uh, when the wall actually came down, had written a speech and it was published. It was an op-ed, actually not a speech, and the op-ed was published in 26 European papers. And in this op-ed, the German foreign minister, Heiko Maas, thanked every single European actor um, for... Allowing Germany to unify again
0: huh. um, in
1: 1990, but he left out the Americans, <laughs> and he did it, I believe, because he used the commemorations of the fall of the wall to remind Europe to st- that standing united is oh, yeah. better than the European Union mm-hmm. breaking up. Right, and so it was a, and he even reached out to the um, to the Russians. By thanking Gorbachev and be uh, the the Soviet, the benign Soviet response in 1989, so it was to him a way to appeal to German uh, sensibilities, but more so the European sensibilities. Pan
0: Europeanism.
1: Pan Europeanism, um, a way to show up the European Union mm-hmm. commitments on any side you can imagine, especially thanking the British. Thinking sure. about what's going on right now.
0: To say now we're talking about Brexit—that's right. that's a whole other podcast. Um,
1: <laughs> But (laughs) the Americans felt sidelined, and rightfully so. Mm -hmm. So then a bit of a Twitter feud erupted, I believe. Um, And he then, a week later, made nice with the Americans. So there were commemorations in Leipzig, and the American representatives there were thanked profusely by the same minister. But it's just interesting <laughs> to me to think about that op-ed and the function this op-ed yeah. was supposed to play and how the...
0: That's really fascinating.
1: ...the events of 1989 are so malleable. Yeah, yeah. They can be recast in whichever way you want. They can be
0: bent to any kind of ideological or um, political narrative as someone sees fit yeah. in any given moment.
1: Yeah. So that was my master's thesis, and I, um, I trained as a historian of memory, and then I quickly realized, actually... Doing some field work in Germany, that I am East German and mm-hmm. I am of a generation that older generations regarded with a little bit of trepidation. Okay. Because it was the third generation that asked questions of the Nazi generation. So then everybody thought the third generation East Germans would question our parents and grandparents oh, about why they had propped up the dictatorship mm-hmm. for as long as they had. And so I realized very quickly, with just some basic oral history training and having that in my mind, that. I could not actually write a dissertation on East German topics Mm -hmm. because I would not be able to get the same kind of responses from interview subjects as my American colleagues could. I see. So I had to think about my own situation now. You know, situation. The my.
0: With, uh, in a lot of ways, it hit too close to home for yeah. for both sides, or right? For all parties involved.
1: So I dabbled in East German history only for my master's, and then went back in time. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then, as part of your graduate training, you know, you kind of was it early on that you decided, you know, maybe maybe I don't want to do a tenure track job. Maybe I actually want to be an editor.
1: I had actually decided that in high school.
0: In high school, okay. Yes,
1: um, I was. A type A student and an A student, both. They tend to go together. (laughs) Double A. And so I only skipped high school once. I only skipped gymnasium once, and that is to go to the Leipzig Book Fair. Ah. To talk to publishers to see if I could get an internship. Oh, wow. I did not know what being a book editor meant. Mm -hmm. I just knew I wanted to do that.
0: But it was very appealing early on in your life.
1: It was very, very appealing. I had worked for the school paper, uh, both as a writer and an editor. And I always found books fascinating. And after my exchange year, I had this sort of Americanized can-do attitude. Mm -hmm. So I just decided (laughs) (laughs) uh, in 11th grade to go to the Leipzig Book Fair and talk to publishers and just say, hey, I'm here to provide free labor. Can I have an internship? And that being Germany, that didn't quite work out. Mm -hmm. In Germany, everything's very formalized. Even for unpaid internships, there's a formal application process. Mm -hmm. And they basically... Told me go home, little girl. Oh, and that's nice. Try again, once you've go finished th- gymnasium and
0: you go through the process formally.
1: Go through the process formally, but I already knew I was going to emigrate, so mm-hmm. I didn't do that. But yeah, I tried to. I tried to score an unpaid internship at the Leipzig Book Fair and was thwarted. <laughs> yeah. in my ambitions. So Who
0: turns down free labor? But I guess at the book fair really they, sure. did, <laughs> they did. They
1: um, did. And so it was always in the back of my mind that I wanted to be an editor of some mm-hmm. sort. And in college, I was a history major with a journalism minor, mm-hmm. and I worked for the school paper again, in both as a writer as, and as an editor. And then I applied to graduate school, and here I have to admit, I was quite mercenary, or deliberate might be the nicer adjective.
0: I kind of like the word mercenary, <laughs> that sounds pretty
1: good. <laughs> and I realized if you go and get a master's in journalism, you have to pay... The school. Uh, if you go and get a PhD in history, if you're lucky, the school pays you. The school you. pays you, yeah. And so I, uh, I chose the route of getting the PhD That's in history. That's a much better history.
0: deal, I think, financially. Anyway. Right,
1: Yeah. right. Plus, I was quite <laughs> interested in uh, becoming a, a trained historian as yeah. well. And so I was admitted to Wisconsin, and I started in the fall of 2004, and that fall, Jeremy Surrey, who oh. was the Americanist, mm-hmm. uh, modern Americanist at the time at Wisconsin, invited his editor, Susan Ferber, from Oxford University Press, oh. to give a talk to grad students mm-hmm. about how you turn your dissertation into a book. And Susan
0: Ferber is a pretty big deal.
1: Yes, she was wonderful, and yeah. she gave really good advice to all of us. Um, some of us were really on early, early on in the process, and some were finishing grad students, mm-hmm. and um, I listened to her talk. And then afterwards, I meekly went up to her and I asked her, this was great, but how do I get your job? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And
1: Susan was wonderful and gracious, and I have thanked her in person now. Also, I just saw her at a conference a couple of weeks ago. Oh, nice. uh, For giving me the best advice, which is go intern with your local university press Mm -hmm. and start from there. That's fantastic. once more, I found myself seeking an unpaid internship. (laughs) And this time, the University of Wisconsin Press folks were very nice, much nicer than the folks at the Leipzig Book Fair. And they said, sure, of course. And they were
0: Um, happy to have you.
1: Yeah, they were happy to have me. And I started as an unpaid acquisitions intern. Mm -hmm. And that was my first semester in grad school. So I've been in graduate school. I pursued two different career paths. Mm -hmm. And I always wanted the editorial one to work out. And I was also allowed to do that.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's really important, right? Because, uh, you know, as I think we, as we, were, we were talking about earlier today, um, off camera or off podcast, is that um, a, lot of, a lot of programs have the expectation that you will become a tenure track professor, or if you are not, then you are a complete failure. And, mm-hmm. and thank you for wasting our time. But you, you know, very deliberately and very consciously early on decided, no, actually, I want to be an editor. Mm-hmm. And you then put yourself in a position to pursue that career by taking, asking for and receiving eventually unpaid internships <laughs> at the right. University Press. Yeah. And, and so, and I'm oh, sorry, go ahead.
1: Well, and I was going to say, and that actually morphed into a paid project assistantship. Yeah. Um, because the acquisitions editor, uh, Raphael Kadushin, was friends with the program director of the George L. Mosse program, mm-hmm. John Todorici, and... So John knew from Rafi that I was at the press and interested in editorial work, and he knew me as one of the Massey fellows. And he said, you know, if you have an interest in publishing and you're a Massey fellow, why don't you become my assistant and work on the George Massey series and modern European cultural and intellectual history. Mm -hmm. And those books are translations from German or Italian published by University of Wisconsin Press in English. Oh, nice. And so then I was actually able to, through the history department, um knowing somebody at the press um have this project assistantship on top of my stipend
0: oh that's even better
1: and um (laughs) and that really facilitated my entry into university press publishing Mm -hmm. because i through working on the mossy series i became familiar with every single department at a press Mm -hmm. and i was able to shepherd projects at the press from the acquisition stage through to the marketing stage.
0: You saw it from the whole life of the book, from the very beginnings of a book um, through actually seeing it on the bookshelves Mm -hmm. then. And then after you graduated, uh, and before you came here to the UVA Press, you spent the last several years in Williamsburg, Virginia, Mm -hmm. with uh, the Omohundro Institute of Early American History and Culture on the editorial team there. And so you were um, a 20th-century Europeanist stuck in early America, uh, uh, and and what was that
1: like? That was a <laughs> fantastic apprenticeship uh-huh. in developmental editing. So what had happened is I was in Europe, <clears throat> actually as an American, I was an exchange American in Germany. Ah, I'm still very proud of myself for that. Well done. Um, I had a day a day fellowship. I had been in the United States long enough to qualify. I had been quite honest on my application that I was from Germany Mm -hmm. and I was going to use archives in Germany as well as the Czech Republic and in England. And they said, sure, come be an American in Germany. Yeah. And so I had just returned from my year abroad and saw the ad um, that the Armando Institute was looking for, an assistant editor in the books program, and... It was in Virginia, and my husband is an archivist, so he wanted to be on the East Coast, uh-huh. and so I decided to apply, and I made quite clear that I had press experience in my application. Sure. But that I was a modern Europeanist, but I had this interesting PhD minor, mm-hmm. I had completed it under Ned Blackhawk in oh, yeah. Native American history. So I was asking the, the editor of books at the time, Frederica Teuter, does that count? <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> I, I am a modern Europeanist, but I have this somewhat uh, slight, but still, uh, you know, there was some formal training in Native American history mm-hmm. under Ned at Wisconsin, and she said she hired me. So, she said yes, and I was delighted.
0: And you were off to the races from there.
1: I was, and I it felt like I did another set of comps <laughs> at the Omohundra Institute <laughs> familiarizing myself with all the other aspects of yeah. uh, what Karen Wolf now calls West early America.
0: Oh, lordy. And there's a lot of it there, too.
1: There was a lot of it there. Um, and I spent almost a decade at the Omahondo Institute in the books program mm-hmm. and got this fantastic education in what animates early American history, mm-hmm. the big questions of the field, all the different components of the field, and got to work on wonderful, wonderful books.
0: What do you, so, what do you think have been the big questions that have animated early American history in the in the decade that you spent at at the
1: OI? When I started um, in two thousand early early two thousand ten, it was um, still debating the Atlantic turn, okay. Atlantic history, and how to do it well. Mm-hmm. What is this thing called
0: Atlantic uh, history, and what does yes. it all mean? Yeah,
1: and also. The turn to towards the Caribbean and integrating the Caribbean into the history of the United States Mm -hmm. and all those connections, and then Indigenous studies, slavery studies, um, the Francophone Atlantic, how the Uh, Francophone mm -hmm. Atlantic can inform the British Atlantic field, Mm -hmm. Um, also of course Spanish America and the connections there. into the Northern Hemisphere. So I, but I, if I think about the books I worked on at the Almohundro, they, they don't really fit into one neat, or even two neat categories. Yeah. They span everything from religious history to social history um, to political history. Mm-hmm. And they're not all Atlantic. Sure. Uh, some of them were, some of them were not. And so it was just um, this wonderful Education and all the different components mm-hmm. of early America.
0: It's really kind of a trial by fire, especially if you're mm-hmm. coming from outside the field then, or, right. or largely outside the field, um, and you're coming at, at a time right when, as you say, people are debating, you know, what Atlantic history is. You know, is it, has it reached a point where we can make big claims about it, or how to mm-hmm. even, as you say, how to even do it? Um, I'm not even sure if we've solved that question yet, but, but if we solved it, then what's the fun? Do you have a a favorite book that you worked on, or it worked with a favorite author? I mean, we we won't talk about the other opposite side of that equation, but
1: (laughs) Um, I like all of my authors. I I really, I really do, and I I think they know that I do. Um, If I were to pick a book that taught me the most. it's a really interesting question. I think Susanna Shaw Romney's New Netherland Connections taught oh, me, yeah. taught me the most both about um, Atlantic mm-hmm. history, about how to seamlessly integrate theory mm-hmm. um, into the writing of early American history, and I worked with her very closely. So in terms of my own development as an editor, her project was quite crucial. Yeah. Because I saw it at really early stages and was able to work collaboratively with her to make it into the book it now mm-hmm. is. And that collaborative process was very beneficial for both, I want mm-hmm. to say. And I consider Susanna a very good friend. And I hope she would agree.
0: Yeah, and, and as you were saying earlier, you know, you were a developmental editor. Um and that really means correct me if I'm wrong, but you were there sort of every step of the way from the the formation of the book pro- of a project as a book project, but then working with authors to edit chapters as they come in, to edit the manuscript mm-hmm. as it, it comes in as a whole, and then taking it through peer review. So you're really sort of shepherding,
1: mm-hmm.
0: holding our hand, as you might say, you know, but also um, disciplining <laughs> authors when they need it.
1: At the I consider my time there a great apprenticeship in learning Mm -hmm. how to do that under the tutelage of Frederica Teuter and some projects come in at an advanced stage but Mm -hmm. some projects especially working with the fellows you are there from the ground up Yeah. and you uh, really shepherd a project through the process from dissertation to finished Mm -hmm. book in hand so another book that taught me a lot was actually working on Molly Walsh's book
0: oh yes American and Baroque.
1: American Baroque. And Molly's Roundtable was the first one I attended at Dear Mohandru oh, after really? I had been hired. And then I was lucky enough to work closely with her on the chapters mm-hmm. after peer review, right before it went into copy editing. Mm-hmm. And so I did see her project from beginning to end. And it's, it's a different process, process at every stage. Yeah. At the Roundtables, I saw how big ideas... Then have to be filtered by an editor into mm-hmm. a sort of edits that can be made, revisions yeah. that are actually um, achievable. But at the roundtable, at the Moindro, at least um, two outside experts plus half the, the intellectual half of the William Mary faculty and um, the editors just go to town on a dissertation yeah. <laughs> in, a, in a in a very in a, good con- way. In a very good way.
0: You know that book is about slavery and uh, aquaculture and pearl gathering and and you know talking about consumer fashions and things like that. You know something that just sort of almost seems like it comes out of left field, but then is, is you sort of realize, well, it's a very exciting project. And so how do you then how do you sort of think about okay, let's this is great. And as you say, we're at this roundtable, and and it's not you know at the, if anyone has ever been to the Omaheke, it, no one ever gets attacked. It's actually a very friendly and. Mm-hmm. And collaborative place, but then yeah, you set an author down and you subject them to
1: two hours, two of, hours of of brainstorming the best possible book it can be. But then, as an editor, you have to take that yeah and guide the fellow, and then fellow who becomes an author through chapters mm-hmm. and in in a more concrete way. Yeah, and it was also interesting to and a good learning experience for me to be there for Molly's round table and see the sort of big ideas then on the page Mm -hmm. and Molly using that feedback productively produce a manuscript then it goes through peer review and then I got to come in again at the end and really help her shape the chapters on a sentence by sentence level yeah
0: like really down to the and at that point you cannot
1: say anymore have you thought of yeah the huge huge new argument you yeah. could make, you'd have to then be very precise on mm-hmm. advising an author on, oh, the sentence here would make it for a better topic sentence yeah. there, or you could p- cut down this part of the chapter in order to make it flow a little better. Yeah. And so for her project, in terms of my own evolution as a developmental editor, I... I got to see it from the big picture down to the nitty gritty mm-hmm. stage, and that was really productive.
0: And it really takes a village to, mm-hmm. to pull one of these books off. So now that you're at the UVA Press, um, what what excites you? What you know? What do you see? Is the next few years looking like for you? As the editor of editor of history and social sciences, is that correct? Of history yeah. and social
1: sciences. So I'm delighted to be here. It feels almost like coming a little bit full circle. Mm-hmm. I started at a university press at Wisconsin and now I'm back in a university press environment. Uh-huh. And your Mohandro is very small in terms of the number of books it produces. Sure. And it's not quite, it's adjacent to, but not part of that same ecosystem. Uh-huh. So I'm now uh, delighted to be back in, and have a much bigger sandbox yeah. to play in. <laughs> um, and I have to say that I'm delighted to be back where I can do books on the 20th century, <laughs> yeah. given my own training.
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: Um, come up for air but, now. Come up for air, <laughs> but also but also use everything I've learned at the Omohunter Institute very productively here. Mm-hmm. And I have two wonderful series in early American history, and now I get to take history through the 19th into the 20th century and um, consider American history broadly. Yeah. And I'm very excited um, to do that. And then I'm also excited to learn an entire new field. Um, sure. Political science. Oh, yeah. Especially. Yeah. So... I said I started here after Labor Day, and I have been in Charlottesville from right after Labor Day, but my very first assignment as the new editor for History and Social Sciences was actually go to the APSA.
0: Oh, the American uh, Political Science, Science, yeah. uh,
1: In D.C. in late August. And that was an interesting crash course in an entirely different field that I know little about. I've gone to sociological conferences as an undergrad, Mm -hmm. um, and I did a little bit of political science then, but now learning the lingo of that field yeah. and the expectations of that field, I consider quite exciting. It's
0: interesting because it's, 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 a, it's a field that is closely related to history, but it's, and then it's almost like they throw in a little bit of law, uh, legal reasoning into the pot, and then you know, they deploy a lot of graphs and regression analysis. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so you got learn, start learning to read charts and all that kind of fun stuff. Yes,
1: it's <laughs> very quantitative, and yeah. it's also present political.
0: Very present,
1: yeah. Uh, It has an energy behind it right now Mm -hmm. to explain the situation uh, the U.S. finds itself in, but also across the globe. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's going to be tremendously important to publish really good books in the next couple of years um, that really highlight for the public what are the historical uh, structures that now explain Mm -hmm. why we are where we are. And also some of those books... Are, can be a little more normative and prescribe changes. Yeah, And so I, I think in the next few years, um, being a very good story to the political scientist mm-hmm. and learning that field will be exciting. And then in the history field, it's connecting the centuries. UVA Press has a fantastic reputation in early America, sure. thanks to your advisor, Peter Ono.: Oh, yeah. Uh, good job, Peter. And, <laughs> uh, in, in part. And also Civil War history, um, uh-huh. and then presidential studies starting with Nixon. And I would like to connect American history across the centuries oh, okay. and um, also publish books in the late 19th and in the mm-hmm. early 20th century.
0: So are you interested in, in publishing more works that are you know, what we might call synthesis, uh, looking at books that treat a broad swath of time to connect those, the, dot, or to create a, uh, a new series that, that looks at some... Uh, changes that take place across the centuries
1: um to a degree so when i was at william and mary i was also lucky enough to teach and Mm -hmm. one course i created was americans in europe Ah. and i taught it based on my own research but i taught it from 1492 through the cold war
0: that's a that's a that's a long period of time so it
1: is and um i know that there's other university presses that have fantastic series on America and the world, mm-hmm. but I would like to find a niche where I can do something like Americans in Europe mm-hmm. um, and offer books that maybe collectively cover the long durée, but not individually. It's quite a hard task yeah. to connect the centuries in one book, but if I can offer books that treat each time period uh, within a theme, mm-hmm. I think that would be wonderful. Well,
0: that sounds pretty terrific.
1: To offer, and then, of course, coming from the Omohundro Institute and thanks to Karen Wolf's mentorship, Vast um, Early America appeals to me. Oh, so, yeah. I think UVA Press's early American offerings can be a little more hemispheric, a little yeah. more Atlantic.
0: The vast early republic. Uh,
1: yes, the vast <laughs> early republic. Um, so, I would, uh, I'd like to see if I could attract projects here that uh, speak to some of those big currents that are going on mm-hmm. in the field right now.
0: Well, That sounds terrific. Well, Nadine, it sounds like you've hit the ground running, and I know everyone is delighted that you're here, and so we look forward to seeing what books you crank out over the next couple of years, and I'm sure that there are plenty of authors out there who will be delighted to work with you, so thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today.
1: Thank you for indulging me and having me reminisce a little bit about my own childhood. (laughs) It's
0: my pleasure. (laughs) Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambuske, with assistance from Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our music was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. You can find more information on our webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.